I'm Chris Brown and welcome to episode 7 of Radicals in Conversation in-house, the podcast series from Pluto Press produced in collaboration with Bookhouse, an independent bookshop located in the heart of Bristol. Every month alongside our regular show we're also sharing an episode that's been recorded on location in Bookhouse as part of their in-house events programme. These events feature authors of some of the most exciting radical non-fiction that's being published today. It's a bit later than planned, but I'm very pleased to present our first in-house episode of the year. This month's episode was recorded on the 8th of March. James Meadway, the director of the Progressive Economy Forum and a former economics advisor to John McDonnell, came to Bookhouse to talk about his new co-authored pamphlet, The Cost of Living Crisis and How to Get Out of It. Interviewed by Raven Hart, James explains in plain terms what is meant by inflation, increases or cuts in real terms, and phenomena like the wage price spiral. He deals with the many myths, misconceptions and misdirections that abound in mainstream reporting on economics and offers some practical proposals as well for how to resolve the crisis. It's really great to have James back on the podcast again and it's a really fantastic discussion that he's leading here, so you're definitely in for a treat. The Cost of Living Crisis and How to Get Out of It is published by Verso and is, of course, available to buy online or in store from Bookhouse. Just head over to their website, bookhousebristol.com, for more information. So, without further ado, here are James Meadway and Raven Hart on Radicals and Conversation in-house. Yeah, thanks everyone for coming um, to this um, discussion on the Cost of Living Crisis and How to Solve It, which was written by this good gentleman here and uh, a couple of other people. James Meadway is the director of the Progressive Economy Forum and uh, is a former economic advisor to John McDonnell and has been doing lots of interesting good research through the PEF on the current situation. Just to kind of give you an overview of the book then, within 65 quite small pages manages to cover what are the, you know, the driving forces behind the cost of living crisis whilst also providing some background as to kind of the tools as it were you need uh, might help you understand um, what's going on and offers an alternative set of policies to one that are currently being offered by the mainstream analysis. So again, the first thing to point out is actually how little prerequisite economic knowledge is needed to understand the current situation. It kind of starts out by outlining the three core concepts you need to understand the cost of living crisis. Inflation, first one. Secondly, um, what is meant by real terms, so example, like real wages. And thirdly, the concepts of supply and demand. With these key concepts in hand, the book then goes on to dispel the myth that the cause of inflation is being driven by wages or uh, the increased money supply, i.e. demand side forces, uh, and instead um, that the shortage in supply is giving businesses the ability to opportunistically raise prices, uh, which translates for them into higher profits. As such, James and his co-authors argue that it's profits, uh, not wages, that are driving inflation, um, as can be seen by the fact that the rate of wage increases are failing to keep up with the rate of inflation, whereas profits are rising uh, above the rate of inflation. Uh, In effect, this is a transfer, obviously, of purchasing power and wealth from workers, corporations and their shareholders. So basically what we're going to do is just run through the book, we're going to run through each chapter briefly, the core concepts, the supply side, the demand side, what the mainstream narrative is saying and you know, what their solutions are and then what the alternative to, to the issue of cost of living inflation is. So, um, yeah, firstly, the core concepts. So, James, what is inflation? Um, what do we mean by real terms? And uh, what do we mean by supply and demand? 
Well, thank, thanks for coming, everyone. I'm glad you think it's efficient in the explanation because like, the, the aim of writing the thing was to try and get an argument about what is going on with rising prices and, and the cost of living crisis, the, the fact that people's money isn't going as far as it used to. Because mostly the discussion is dominated by a set of really quite bad ideas that don't really work very well. They literally don't explain what's happening in the world and yet people still have them in their heads and it's still sort of pushed by institutions like the Bank of England or the government or you read it in the newspapers and sometimes economics is really incredibly easy and at the core of the cost of living crisis and the core argument of the book is that if wages and salaries aren't going up but prices are profits must be rising which is exactly what's happening so when you talk about the cost of living crisis a major part of this is that even though in real terms in other words when you talk about real terms, it's saying that the money you have is becoming worth less as prices go up. In real terms, the pound that you have today is worth less and about 12% less uh, than it would have been a year ago, 10% less, I should say. So that's real terms. That's the real terms loss that's been inflicted on us. The flip side of that is that there are a bunch of corporations, very, very large companies in particular, most obviously energy, but there was a very good report from Greenpeace uh, just last week on the colossal profits being made by five or so major agribusinesses around the world now. And they're making colossal profits because the price of food is rising very rapidly, still rising. You know, the basket of goods that they use to construct inflation, I'll, I'll come back to what that is, for food alone is going up 16% over the last year. So that's much, much higher rate of price increase for food than the rate of increase for everything else that's out there. And way, way above, by the way, what people's wages are going up at, which is about you know, 6% or thereabouts, or two and a bit percent if you're in the public sector, which is disastrous. And that's obviously why people are going out and strike. And you know, one of the arguments obviously in the book is also that there's clearly a very large amount of money out there. That if you wanted to pay people more, you could pay people more. The government can easily afford to pay a 10% pay increase to its entire workforce. The cost of that would be about 25 billion pounds. The £25 billion is less than the savings made by not having Liz Truss as Prime Minister uh, anymore. So you could easily uh, afford this in terms of you know, the government's plans for its borrowing over the next sort of five years or so. And if you don't want to use it from borrowing, if you don't want to take that money from borrowing, you can go and tax these very, very large companies that are making absolutely extraordinary profits at the minute. So the money's there. It's just that he's been taken out of people's hands and transferring itself into profits from these very, very large corporations. That's the core of the cost of living crisis. So that's kind of the explanation we wanted to get to. The other side of that explanation is why is this happening now? Because I think you do sometimes see, I mean, it was quite incredible to see actually that um, Catherine Mann, who sits on the Monetary Policy Committee of the Bank of England, in other words, the people who decide every month or so what the Bank of England is going to do with its interest rate that it sets, saying, just yesterday, two days ago, that, oh, we think there's a serious problem with corporate power and uh, there's big companies putting up prices and that's a real problem at the minute. And it's like, okay, th this is just a completely alternative explanation to the usual thing you get from the Bank of England, which is this idea of a wage price spiral, which is the idea that wages are going up so much, in case you haven't noticed, that poor companies are being forced to put up prices even more, and that in turn leads to more militant demands from workers to have wages go up even higher, and it's all terrible, and it's all like the 1970s. Well, it's completely nonsensical, right? Because wages are obviously not going up as much as prices. And unlike the 1970s, which is the reference point and where this idea comes from, profits in the 70s were falling and falling. 
you want to know why the 70s is treated as such a decade of crisis, it's because profits fall throughout the entire decade. Profits today are going up and up and up for large companies, smaller businesses less so, but for large companies, it's the exact opposite crisis. And here was a member of the Monetary Policy Committee of the Bank of England just coming out and, and saying this. It's, like, it's quite incredible. But then the other bit that's quite incredible is that because she sits on the Monetary Policy Committee of the Bank of England, what is the solution to companies making loads and loads of profits and prices going up? It is, of course, to put up interest rates, because that's all you do if you're the Bank of England, right? It is a classic, I have a hammer, and every single problem out there is a nail, and you're just going to hammer away at it. There is no way that driving up interest rates in the way the Bank of England has done is going to restrain the kind of inflation that we've got at the minute, which is a combination of, crucially, rising profits with companies exploiting the second part of this, which is that we live in a world beset by multiple crises. That you have Russia invading Ukraine last year, which has driven up the price of food massively because there's a shortage of supply. It's becoming an extended crisis in the food supply system because Russia and Ukraine are very big producers of fertilizers. If you can't get fertilizer, the price of the fertilizer goes up. You won't grow as much as a farmer. That produces a crisis in food production over this year. On top of that, you have the ecological crisis that you can't pick up a newspaper every single day without seeing that you know, there's floods that disrupt coffee production in Brazil. There's uh, drought also disrupting later coffee production in Brazil. There's a plague of locusts last year in Eastern Africa. That, you know, these things are products of an ecological crisis, which is being exploited by companies in a position to do that. The energy companies, the big agribusinesses who are making astronomical profits. Put all this together, there's no part of this where putting up interest rates, which by the way means that you know, anybody with variable rate mortgage has to pay a lot more for it, there's no way that doing this affects any part of that system. So the final bit of the book is an argument that, look, we need to take on corporate power, but we also need to think about how we build an economy that can withstand the ecological crisis and not contribute further to it, for example, by rapid decarbonisation of energy systems, of building more resilient food supply systems and really fundamental parts of the economy. And that's how you start to address the cost of living crisis. Because the prognosis at this point is that inflation isn't coming back down to the 2% target or whatever the Bank of England thinks is going to happen. The Bank of England's own forecast will be 5% by the end of the year. If we're in a world of crises, where you have large corporations with that kind of power, able to turn shortages in supply due to the crises into profits, inflation isn't going to come back down to what it was in the you know, 2000s. This isn't going to happen. And you putting up interest rates isn't actually going to affect that. Yeah. How are interest rates supposed to work in theory? What is the reasoning behind the Bank of England putting up interest rates in their model of how the economy works? And perhaps we can elaborate on why that isn't appropriate. Which is quite... Like they, they sometimes come out with this. The, the governor of the Bank of England, Andrew Bailey, was talking about this the other day. They're sometimes quite blunt about what it is they think they're doing. And it's kind of widely accepted that, OK, we have inflation, so interest rates have to go up. They don't like to spell out what they think the mechanism is. Because the mechanism there is that by putting up interest rates, the Bank of England anticipates that there will be a worse recession. And if there's a worse recession, you'll have more unemployment. And if you have more unemployment, people will be too scared to go and ask for higher wages because they'll fear the sack. And that's the mechanism. And there's actually not much more to it at this point. That, that is what is supposed to happen. So every time they're putting up interest rates, they are hoping that this will frighten people into not going out on strike, not demanding higher wages. And therefore, in their world where higher wages means that prices go up, you break that wage price spiral. So not only is it just wrong as an explanation of why inflation is happening today, it is not driven by wages, it's also 
in its anticipated impact, quite brutal because the aim is to make a recession worse. We're going to have probably a shallow recession this year by putting up interest rates. The Bank of England expects that to be worse than it would be and in so doing intimidate people into not demanding the pay that they're entitled to. No, I think they've actually said explicitly that they want to increase unemployment to about 6% by mid this year to be able to achieve their inflation target. It's like, what's the point of controlling inflation if the way that you're doing it is by punishing, like, who, is, who is this benefiting? And, and that is perhaps, again, another theme throughout the book is like, well, inflation isn't in of itself a bad thing. Inflation is a form of redistribution. And the question of how inflation redistributes wealth in a society is a political question. We'll come back to that later, I think. But um, do you want to just quickly, I don't know if we touched on this yet, but just like quick, quick definitions of what inflation is and, and supply and demand and things like I mean, that. I feel like, well, we do, we do start the book out like this because there's a couple of things that I suppose if you're not an economist, it always gets presented in the most confusing ways possible. So we do sort of start out by trying to spell out what is inflation and how we measure inflation. Because the idea of inflation is it is capturing the average increase in prices over, over a year that we measure over the last 12 months. What is an average price? To get to an average price, you have to think about, well, what do people on average buy? So what does the average so-called basket of goods that people are going out to buy look like? And to get to that, you have to think about, well, okay, if you have somebody who's earning however many thousand pounds, they'll spend X percent on food, Y percent on housing, another load on uh, energy costs and heating costs, maybe something on the car. And you take all that together and that's the average consumption that takes place. And that gives you the basket of goods. And then you go and look at how much the prices in that basket of goods have gone up. And that gives you a headline inflation figure. So it's a, an average. Which means, of course, there's another thing that's going on there, which is that actually no one really buys the average. There's no actual average person wandering around. Everybody has their own patterns of consumption. In particular, the poorer you are, and it's Jack Monroe, I think, has done a good job of pointing this out, the poorer you are, the more you're going to have to spend on essentials as a share of your income. So the effects of inflation, particularly of the kind we have, will be a lot worse the lower money you have because you're having to spend more of what little you have on the things that are essential or unavoidable. So there's this side effect in particular when you see inflation of the kind we've got at the minute where it's prices of essentials, things you can't really avoid consuming. Energy, right, you can turn the lights off, you can sit and shiver in your house, it's not great but maybe you can do that a bit but it's not ideal. And food you really can't avoid. Which means the side effect of inflation right now is that because people are sticking all their money into things that they can't avoid buying, everything else is getting squeezed. And if everything else is getting squeezed, that's the mechanism that also produces a recession. So this is kind of close to the worst of all worlds that you're getting to at this point. There was a, something else on inflation and, and how people think about it. Oh yeah, the other one, and I think this is just gonna be a, a sort of a species of confusion that is being played up to by the government. Cause you know, Rishi Sunak has his, his magic target of like inflation will be halved by the end of the year. The Bank of England's own forecasts, if he does nothing at all, the Bank of England's own forecasts are that inflation will basically halve by the end of the year. So he's quite likely to achieve that one, so well done him. It's a bit better than Keir Starmer saying, oh, we'll be the fastest growing economy in the G7. Like, how, how are you going to do that? Are you can stop Japan growing for a bit or something like this. It's like, it doesn't, doesn't work. Yeah, exactly. Well, maybe that's it. It's, you need to set a target that doesn't depend on what everybody else does, um, which Rishi Sunak has grasped, so well done him. But they'll present it as inflation is coming down, isn't that good? Inflation coming down doesn't mean prices are now falling. It just means prices are not going up as fast as they used to be. So if inflation was you know, up to nearly 12% over last year, 11% in this country, that 11% is gone. That's a permanent loss of your income of 11% less purchasing power you have. That unless your wages also go up 11%, you are not getting that back. So if inflation isn't falling, you're still being made poorer and poorer and poorer for as long as your pay 
isn't keeping up with it. You hear this misconception a lot, actually, surprisingly, on you know, the news, uh, the commentators and, and pundits of various kinds will say, uh, when, when debating with, say, uh, you know, Mick Lynch or some other kind of friend, you're like, well, you know, what if inflation, go, you know, you're asking for a 10% pay rise, what if inflation, you know, drops down to 5% next year? So, yeah, that's 5% on top of the 10% yes, that's already exactly. existed. Yes. So then you'd be asking for another 5% on top of the, you know, the 10% you've just asked for. It doesn't, you know, the prices are permanently increasing. Um, so it's a permanent loss of income. So, yeah, that's, let's move on to the kind of like uh, the supply side. You kind, of, you kind of touched on this a little bit already, talking about the war in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. Initially, you kind of talk about how uh, the disruption to supply chains is what really clogged up the system, as it were. We're starting to kind of see supply chains return to normal now, but then, of course, seeing reduced energy supply. Um, some of the things that are less spoken about in the mainstream discourse, as it were, um, are things like climate change, which, as you mentioned, is impacting the food shortages, which is likely to price increases there. Uh, but there's another kind of more chronic thing, which is the fact that the UK has had quite kind of low investment and productivity for many, many years. That has made us very dependent upon uh, imports. So do you want to get into that dimension of the book? It's written with a sort of British focus. The trouble is, if you sit in Britain, you, you can make a mistake that you think the rest of the world is as bad as this. And, and typically, we, at least relative to the developed world, it's usually worse here than everywhere else. That, For example, inflation has been somewhat higher here than in much of the rest of Western Europe, at least over the last year or so. And there's a couple of things feeding into that. Brexit has not helped. I mean, Brexit has added probably 3% on food price inflation over the last 12 months or so. Food price inflation is 16% at the minute, so it's not everything. The more important bits there is that we now import about half of the food we eat. And if you're importing half the food you eat, what happens in the rest of the world really starts to affect the price of the food that you're trying to buy here. So if you do find there's a shortage of grain or a shortage of sunflower oil, or there's, you know, go through a little bit, shortage of coffee, there's a shortage of avocados earlier in the year, there's all sorts of things that are hit by this, you're importing these things. And if the price is going up because there's a shortage, and because there's very large companies sitting in the supply chain that are happy to exploit that shortage, they won't be making money out of the shortage. It's a basic demand and supply thing here, that the stuff is still in demand, people still have to eat, the supply is reduced, you can make a lot of profits out of this. That if you're confronted by all of this, your prices are going to rise in Britain rapidly because of shortages in the rest of the world, because you're dependent on half the food that you, you eat here is imported. Same thing with gas, natural gas, we import about half of that, again, from the rest of the world. So that's some from Norway, some from Qatar. There's you know, much of the rest of the world, not very, hardly any from Russia. But nonetheless, the shortage of supply of gas from Russia into Europe drives up the price of gas in Europe, which means that because we're having to import half of that gas from the rest of the world, the price immediately starts to rise over here. It's then not helped, by the way, by having a, a sort of fairly ridiculous system of privatised supply of this stuff, that goes directly into people's homes and you know, with Ofgem sitting there supposedly trying to keep the price down, but actually Ofgem considers its job to be protecting the industry and protecting the privatised industry. They say this, you know, look at their website, it says this, that they want to balance consumers and you know, the profits of privatised suppliers. That turns immediately into big, huge increases in the price of energy uh, for most people here. And it also means that when the price of energy starts to come down, as it is now doing in Europe, that doesn't translate so quickly into a declining price that you're actually having to pay for this stuff at home. So there's a series of, some of that relatively easy to solve. Like it is relatively easy to solve the privatised supply problem in Britain of you know, energy in particular, which is that you don't have privatised supply of energy in Britain. The harder bit to solve is that if you're fundamentally reliant on imports of energy from the rest of the world, you're always exposed to what's happening in the rest of the world. That means you need to change how your energy system works. So you need to decarbonise it rapidly. 
for example, so you're not reliant on gas that you import from the rest of the world. You need to actually go ahead and invest heavily in wind power and solar power and this sort of thing. Uh, and that is something we've done a bit of, and it has picked up over the last sort of few years, but nothing like enough to get to where we want to be. So there's an accumulation of problems, this sort of long-term issue of a weakness in supply, a weakness in investment, a kind of capitalism here that's very good at, uh, at generating, you know, money from rising property prices and speculation uh, in various forms of financial speculation in the city of London, but he's really bad at delivering actual investment in useful things like let's not have an energy supply system that's so heavily dependent on imports from the rest of the world. And these two things are connected actually, right? The financialization aspect is actually related to the fact that we've got chronically low investment in fixed capital, in you know, things that make things and that we're running this persistent current account deficit because, as you point out in the book, to run a current account deficit, i.e. to import more than you export, requires you to run a capital account surplus, i.e. it means you need to be able to borrow money from abroad. And who facilitates that exchange? Who facilitates the borrowing of money from other... Well, that's the, it's the financial sector, it's the banks. And so that gives the banks an enormous amount of political capital, yes. um, which, of course, then enables them to manipulate... Yeah, and then you keep, you, then you keep the whole yeah. system running quite happily right, this, right, right? Right. Which is where, what then gets you back to the why does the Bank of England behave in this slightly peculiar fashion? I mean, well, the central banks are doing the same thing, but if you have the Bank of England sitting in the middle of this big financialised economy, the primary interest of any central bank is to look after banks. Right? That's what they exist for. So the first thing that they do is to think about what happens to the banking system, what happens to the broader financial system. And somewhere down the line, we've said, oh, by the way, you also have to do something about inflation. Right? That's been the situation in Britain for God, 30 years, even predating Gordon Brown. But that isn't actually what a central bank was set up to do. This is not why these things exist. It's a thing that we've given to them. And they aren't necessarily, at a time like this, very good at it but they're good at looking after the financial system. And coming, coming back to what we were saying at the beginning about political choices, that is fundamentally the choices being made. Because what inflation does, and I'm maybe perhaps jumping ahead a little bit here, right? but it seems pertinent to mention it now, inflation cancels out interest on debt, right? So, and that's how banks make profit. Banks make profit through interest on, on money lent. In the Bank of England, they're protecting the interest of the bank. They want to try and... And that's why they're trying to punish working people, say, no, no, you can't ask for higher wages it's to protect the, the profits of, of the financial sector, effectively. Right? Well, exactly. And it's also, it's also why, although the government could easily and quickly settle every single pay claim that's been put in against it by effectively its own workers, whether it's nurses or doctors or whoever it is on strike, they've got the money to do this. They don't want to do this. And sometimes they do let these things slip. There was a Treasury source in the Financial Times last week saying that, well, we can't give a pay rise that would match inflation to people in the public sector because basically it'll set a, an example to everyone in the private sector that they can also win a pay rise like this. And we can't have that, so we have to give tops, everybody in the public sector, a 5% pay rise because we're trying to not just keep a lid on what they're asking for, we want to protect profits in the private sector in particular, and we can't risk having a good example set to, to every other worker out there who might be thinking about asking for a 10% pay rise or whatever. I mean, what's been interesting at the minute is that there are bits of the economy where there are real shortages or there have been shortages of labour, of people to work, where you can start seeing big pay rises appearing. Lorry driving is a really striking one, uh, so to speak. Uh, the bus driving, lots and lots of bits of transport, not so much on the rail at the minute, but I have a feeling the government will end up settling there as well, that you have these shortages of labour that people have quite rightly gone out to exploit. Uh, it's a minor theme in the book, but this continual chatter about everybody's taking early retirement after Covid, and isn't this terrible, you've got to get everyone back to work. Rubbish. No, we shouldn't be doing that. It's good that people are taking early retirement because that's one less person competing for a job in the labour market and that means it's more likely somebody else is going to get a, a pay rise because of it. You can see it in lorry driving. 
Lots and lots of lorry drivers took early retirement over the last couple of years or so. You know, side effects of COVID here. That's good for every lorry driver still driving a lorry because you can get a big pay rise out of it. So, you know, it's kind of, you've got to take a, a sort of pro-worker position in a distributional struggle like this. But James, what about the wage price spiral? Well, yes. This leads on nicely to the next <laughs> chapter. Actually, we've flipped these, uh, we've flipped these uh, chaps around, but like, yeah, the, the wage price spiral, you know, so what is that? Where does it come from? So it, it, the argument is that if, if workers ask for higher wages, uh, that would mean that employers have to put up prices more to maintain profits. Yeah. Uh, and this creates a never-ending spiral like the 1970s and we'll all end up with, uh, you know, hyperinflation on money, we'll all be worthless. But as you point out repeatedly in the book, corporations have growing profits and plenty of profits to absorb this. But, you know, what is the wage price spiral myth and, you know, where does it, where does it come from, basically? What, what, what are the origin stories of it? Well, the, the origins are, I mean, you've got, you've got to remember economics in general, economics is always the political subject. It pretends not to be because you do lots of maths and you invent your own sort of language for it, but it's a political subject and it's about fundamentally about who gets what. And the story of the wage price spiral is a story that is designed to protect profits at the expense of wages. The vision in people's heads when they talk about this is of the 1970s, which is when you did have much stronger trade unions than that, like hugely strong. People talk about the winter of discontent. It's nonsense. We're no, nothing like the level of strikes we had in the 70s and 80s, not even close. You know, it's good that these things are coming back into play. It's good that there has been a turn, I would say, in the labour movement, that you do see more people going out and strike and asking for higher wages. And all of this happening is good because we've had 40 years of very weak labour. You know, workers in a bad position in this country, which is why you've had all these other sort of disasters that are stacked up in this country and across the world. So it's a story from the 70s, and it's a story about what happens to the forgotten term that is rarely ever spoken of, apart from, weirdly, by the, this member of the Monetary Policy Committee a few days ago, which is it's always presented prices and wages and salaries. Never do we talk about profits. The big secret of the 70s is a collapse in profits. Profits are being squeezed because workers are getting more money. Right? That's what happens in the 70s. What's happening now is the exact opposite of this. Workers are getting squeezed and profits are going up. Um, so any talk of wage price spiral, with trade unions still you know, recovering, but still on their back, with worker bargaining power, nothing like it was in the 70s, with profits through the roof for large companies, this just doesn't work. But it's been clung to as an explanation because it gives you the politics of it, which is that this is protecting profits, which we're not talking about, at the expense of wages, which we're happy to talk about and we'll claim they're all too high. Yeah. So the other demand side argument, um, this is, it's been less prevalent, I think, in the mainstream discourse, but there are some people, ostensibly from the left wing of the political spectrum, who use this argument quite a lot. Uh, they talk about the, uh, there's too much money everywhere, that the Bank of England has, has printed too much money. That's actually like, it's weirdly, there's a lot of people in like the Austrian school of economic thought, right? Like the far right who, who use this argument a lot as well, right? It's all about the central banks. Central banks are the reason to blame for the inflation. They've done too much QE and Sorry, quantitative easing. Very, very simplified term. It's when the central bank prints money. It's not really that, but we can get into that. But like, yeah, that'll, that'll do. It, sometimes uh, yeah. people get very upset when you say this, but it is basically the central no. bank printing money. Kind of, right. right. Electronically. So like, yeah, right. Yeah. So Japan was the first country to, to do QE. It, it didn't have inflation. It still barely has any inflation yeah. right now, right? I mean, it's, yeah, it's really happy the fact that it's got like 3% inflation. So what is the quantity theory of money? How is that related to QE and, and yeah? Trying to deal with some of the arguments around why inflation is happening in the book. And you do get some people, um, it's a slightly, I won't call it an unholy alliance, but it's like John Redwood and Gary Stevenson, I think, both sort of get, put the idea around from, from slightly very different uh, perspectives. The idea that because the central banks across the world have 
printed so much money electronically <coughs> via quantitative easing. And it's colossal amounts. I mean, since 2009, it's what, 850 billion pounds of extra money they've issued, which, you know, mostly we haven't seen a penny of this. It's mostly over a decade, not gone into rising prices for anything other than property prices. That's effectively what's happened to the money there. And financial assets. It, yeah, and financial assets. What's different over the period since 2020, when COVID struck, is that some of that money did make its way into people's hands, that the Bank of England was printing money in effect at the same time as the government was borrowing very, very large amounts. So in other words, the bank was very close to just printing money so the government could pay for all the extra spending. And that's 400 billion over you know, 12 months or so. It's a huge amount of money, some of which did make its way into people's pockets. This is true. So there's part of the explanation that money printing, quantitative easing, did turn into some people having more money in their pockets. The bit that people then try and argue is that, well, people have more money in their pockets and they go off and buy loads of stuff and they go crazy buying things and prices go up. This is where the whole thing falls apart. The fact that the Bank of England has printed over the last decade £850 billion does not cause Russia to invade Ukraine. Right? It doesn't cause a, a drought in Brazil which damages coffee production. It's not responsible for extreme heat in Europe, which means that the Danube dries up, which means you can't transport goods down it, which means those goods get more expensive. Same thing happened with the Mississippi in America. Bank of England printing money isn't what's creating all these side effects of climate change. So, so for me, it's just on the most basic level, this explanation doesn't work. Right? The causality is all the wrong way around. Yeah. And just, just because you print more money, how you print that money, who it goes yeah. to, depends on what kind of inflation you get. So you know, if, you, if you increase a rich person's income 100 times, they're not going to go out and buy 100 times more milk and 100 times more eggs. Exactly. They're going to go out and buy, you know... Well, they'll go out and buy London property, right? right? Or, right, or they'll, like they'll find some right. financial derivative to put it into, or they'll hide it in a tax haven. Quantitative easing, for the most part, the Bank of England has done it, has looked a little bit like printing money to give to rich people, at least to rich institutions, because they give the money electronically to major banks and major financial institutions. They then think, well, we got all this money, what are we going to do with it? For a decade, it's been, we will stick it into property and some financial instruments. And it's been great if you own loads of property. Uh, and it's not so good if you're trying to rent, for instance. Restaurants don't really see very much of this. It has, quantitative easing in Britain, the Bank of England admits this, has increased inequality because you've printed the money and given it to people who already have quite a lot of money. So this is not a particularly uh, a smart thing to do, but it hasn't contributed to inflation. Yeah. Perhaps COVID was the, a, brief, a brief window where we were doing people's QE or, yeah, you know, but, like Heliports, yeah. where you were actually doing the kind of QE which would redistribute... Yeah, it's, it's the, the, that that furlough, that in effect, furlough was paid for by the Bank of England printing money to pay for it. It's a slightly more roundabout route. But yeah, that's the closest we got to some sort of people's QE. Yeah. Clear then that uh, quantity of money isn't really the issue. Yep. Wages clearly aren't the issue. So as we alluded to at the start, Profits, profits. Are, are the issue. So the FTSE 350 profits are up 73%. Mm -hmm. um, oil and gas companies are making in the tens of billions. Um, this increase in the rate of profit is well above the rate of inflation. And obviously wages are well below the rate of inflation. And yeah, that's not a coincidence. Wages are a core part of a business's fixed costs, right? So if it's wages increasing at a lower rate than the prices are increasing, well, that's going to go to profits, right? And there's a really good report by United Commission on, on profiteering that said that profits could account for up to kind of 60% of inflation, essentially. So um, yeah. yeah, that was a good, good bit of work by yeah. uh, Unite, the trade union from last yeah. year. Really, as all this sort of rise in inflation was getting going, which just looked at, well, what's happened to corporate profits in Britain? And here we're talking really like the serious amount of profits being made is big companies. It's not small businesses. I think we do say in the book that if you're running a small business right now, it's a disaster because you face this huge increase in energy costs, right? That's why pubs are closing at a record rate in Britain. You face a huge increase in energy costs, the same as everybody else, but with even less government support, by the way. And at the same time, because nobody's got any money, because prices are going up, 
like you're not selling as much. So it's just disaster. And it's more expensive for them to borrow and yeah. roll over decks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's just, up. it all stacks up into this is, this is a real problem. So when we're talking about profits are going through the roof, you're talking about the biggest companies, some of the biggest on the planet that are absolutely rolling in it. Shell, BP, most obviously, all the oil companies. But the agribusinesses are, are I think, very, very striking parts of it. These are like Cargill, for example, I don't necessarily name directly, but you know, these are big businesses we don't often hear about because they lurk somewhere else in the supply chain. You know, it's not Tesco's necessarily that's absolutely fleecing customers. You know, the margins in supermarkets are relatively small. It's behind them, it's the grain suppliers for the world, it's the fertilizer sellers, it's the people you don't see who are making the absolute uh, fortune out of this, along with a load of speculation as well, of course. Yeah, yeah. So clearly then, uh, you know, the Bank of England's approach of increasing interest rates to suppress wages isn't going to have uh, much impact on inflation. As we've discussed, that is to the benefit of profits, of, of banks in particular, financial profits. Uh, it certainly doesn't benefit ordinary people for them to put up interest rates that way. So how are we supposed to solve the problem? There's been some interesting discussion recently about the Federal Reserve and then, and then potentially changing this kind of... So all, all, the, all this attempt to raise interest rates to control inflation, to get it back to these, the so-called optimal level of 2%, right? There's this 2% figure which is floated around like oh, this is the holy grail of, in of inflation. And it's nonsense. There's no reason to have 2% inflation, right? It's just yeah. a target that the Bank of England's picked because you know, essentially it sounds kind of all right. Didn't it originate in New Zealand or something? Yeah, yeah, like yeah, some, yeah. It's some just, central bankers. It's like a lot of things. It's it. all meant to look yeah. scientific and impressive. Yeah. It's actually just horseshit, really. Right. right. No, but you could pick a 3% target rate. Right. And, and frankly, the Bank of England currently says at the end of the year it's going to be 5%. My strong suspicion is that we're going to end up with a 5% or thereabouts, rate of inflation for the foreseeable future. I mean, hilariously, sorry, this is a tangent, but hilariously, because of how the models, the conventional economic models that the Bank of England and the Office of Budget Responsibility and the whole gang of them use, how they operate, they're actually predicting disinflation, negative inflation, in a, what, 18 months time, isn't it? Which again, seems like completely implausible if you look at everything that's happening in the world. If you go and stop looking at what economists are saying and find people who might actually know something about what's going on, so you go and talk to the people who forecast harvests, and agricultural output, and they all say it's looking very bad this year. United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization thinks there's 345 million people on the verge of starvation, right? That is part of, we don't get it that badly because this is a big, rich economy, but that level of famine and starvation is the flip side of food prices here going through the roof, right? When tomatoes seem to disappear, a lot of people say, oh, it's Brexit, it doesn't help, but they were disappearing in Ireland as well. Right? You can't find tomatoes in Ireland. There's a whole bunch of other foods you can't find. That's part of the same problem here. That doesn't speak to a world where in the future we're going to have 2% inflation or even disinflation. Everything's going to be fine. That says that the world is going to get worse. And as things stand, some people are going to do extremely well out of that. So if you want to address it, you have to address that power imbalance. Yeah, yeah. And that, and that, was, the, and that was the same thing that caused the, the Bengal farming, right? Like there's plenty, there plenty of food in India at the time. It was just all being exported abroad because that's where they could get the most money for it, right? Yeah, yeah. No, um, I mean, so, that's so, literally... And, and, and the, the speculators in London who had, whatever, future contracts on the... Whatever. Well, this is directly what happened with tomatoes. There, there was, you know, they say, oh, it was bad weather. Yeah, it's bad weather. It's climate change that affected tomato harvests in southern Europe and, and North Africa. And if you're Morocco at that point in time, you stop selling tomatoes to all your, all your neighbours, all your neighbouring uh, African countries. You carry on selling to the EU because you've got quite a favourable trade deal there, and you don't sell any to Britain because you don't have a trade deal. Or if you have one, it's not really worth very much. So you know, this is what happens when you start to get serious shortages. At a country level, you can see places that export grain have banned grain exports. India did it. Now, that's not good if you have to import food. We're one of the countries that imports food. There aren't people going to be on the verge of starvation the same way. Of course not. Obviously not. 
but it is a real economic impact and it all points in the same direction that we have a world hit by crises of various different sorts of which the ecological crisis is the most fundamental and that because of the way the world economy is structured this translates into rising prices and higher profits which go to a few people at the top so fundamentally you have to change that yeah and if that means you go on strike to change that then that's what you do yeah so there we go how not to solve the crisis don't raise interest rates and yes. uh, don't stop wages from going up. So in the book, you basically provide three pillars for, for how to address the cost of living crisis. So wages to rise in line with inflation, as you said, how to, yeah, obviously how you achieve that is more strength to trade unions, better collective bargaining rights, you know, we need higher union density. Uh, the current legislation is obviously working in the complete opposite direction to that. Um, yeah, it's going to make things work if it works. I mean, my, yeah. my belief is it probably is unworkable anyway, just as a right. law. You're trying right. to tell train drivers that you have to do a certain minimum. If you can't get train drivers to drive trains, you don't get a certain minimum, right? So yeah. It's, yeah. yeah. And then perhaps the, you know, the final one is, you said, different tax rates for small and large businesses, yeah, which, yeah. as you said, small businesses are being, being crossed, large businesses are doing very well, makes sense to tax the profits of the large businesses. Well, it's also, it's, a political, it's a political point as well. It's that you, you can say, OK, we need wages to go up, but you want some allies in this fight. And actually, it should be that it's not just the labour movement, we should be able to say to small businesses that we're all suffering in the same kind of way here. And that, that would mean, okay, what's going to help out small business? Well, assistance with energy costs. I mean, obviously for pubs, the pub association has been demanding this for some time. Mm. You know, that would help immediately. That's a reasonable demand to line up here. None of it has anything to do with fiddling about with interest rates or whatever, by the way. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to abuse my privilege as chair just to ask one question. So I have to start off and then we'll open up to the floor if you don't mind. Um, so I think this kind of relates to, it's a question about price control. This is one thing that you didn't, you didn't suggest is like a, one of the three pillars. I'm just interested in your thoughts on that essentially, because you said about how effectively the large corporations are using the shortage of supply to kind of put up prices. And the way that supply and demand is spoken about in economic mainstream and by the media, it's like, it's as if it is some kind of immutable physical law, like thermodynamics or gravity or something. It's, like, it's not, it is a, it's a choice, right? Businesses could just put up their prices, you know, in line with costs and not make more profits, right? But the argument against that typically um, is, is this concept of price signaling, right? This idea that if the government interferes with, with prices, somehow that will stop investors or capitalists from being able to allocate money to the places where they need to increase supply. Because if they see, oh, prices are going up there, I want to invest in that because that's where I'm going to make more profits. If you interfere with that mechanism, then capitalism will implode because, and, and we won't, yeah. <laughs> but like, it'll be something even worse. It'll be something even worse with capitalism. Uh, the society will collapse because nobody will know how to invest things efficiently in society. But doesn't the current situation say with the fact that clearly these businesses aren't really investing in supply, the price signaling mechanism already isn't working because they're just using all their profits to pay out dividends to shareholders or do share buybacks and all these kinds of things. And in this country in particular, we've got chronically you know, low investment in fixed capital and so on and so on. And perhaps this kind of brings us to a more structural kind of analysis, which is what is the role of monopoly in this? Does the fact that we've got very little competition and an economy dominated by such large firms Plain time. Sorry, it's a very long question. Yeah, it's about three of... questions, I think. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> I didn't say I was going to abuse my privilege, and, and I feel like I have. Uh, anyway, that's my question. All right, let, let's, take, let's take me in part. So on prices and what's happening at the minute, because we are getting lots and lots of perverse effects. So you are absolutely right. Mainstream economics, in general, say uh, markets are really good, price mechanisms are really good, because it will send a signal to companies and everybody else that if price goes up, you should invest more in this thing. And then you'll get more supply of whatever this thing is, you know, Books, here we are in a bookshop, more books, right? So the price of books comes down and this is how capitalism is supposed to operate over time. Now, what's happened over the last sort of 12, 18 months or so is the price of natural gas, which has come down a bit, but it's still way higher than it used to be. 
is sending a massive signal to every fossil fuel company out there or people who want to invest in fossil fuel companies that now is a really good time to go out and invest in fossil fuels. So suddenly, at a high price of gas, there are gas fields in the Arctic that become viable for more exploration. There are you know, completely crazy things like, let's go and find some horrible remote bit of the North Atlantic to try and dig around in to pump gas out of, right? This all becomes viable. And this is disastrous from the broader picture of actually we don't want to contribute more and more fossil fuels turn into greenhouse gases which turn into this picture of instability, that we're locked into this horrible sort of doom loop with it. That the price signal says you should go off and get every last bit of gas and every bit of coal and whatever else and burn it because it's really valuable now. So you should go off exploring. That is contributing directly to the wider crisis, which is the products of, of climate change. So the price signal is completely perverse at this point. It's absolutely not working. And it's producing huge profits for fossil fuel companies. And, and by the way, you can listen to some of these very cynical people who, who like work as investment advisors and, and this sort of thing, you know, a couple of sort of American podcasts where people do this. And like very cynically, you get people saying, oh, well, actually, it's really, you know, great time to get into fossil fuels. Complete instability, really expensive. You should put all the money you've got into fo fossil fuel companies. going to be incredibly valuable over the next few years because it's massive instability. Uh, and we still have carbon dependent, uh, fossil fuel dependent energy systems. So you've just got to invest heavily in this exactly the opposite of what we should be doing. So that's a very broad case, I'd say, for like, well, you need to take some element of control of this and impose something like a price control on the price of gas for domestic use. One part. The other part is you need to rinse out profits of fossil fuel companies. Like, the ideal rate of profit for a fossil fuel company is zero because that fossil fuel company shouldn't exist. Now, there's a really good, by the way, there's a really good paper from Platform and Friends of Earth Scotland, again, a couple of days ago, on talking to workers in the oil industry about what a fair transition would look like. Because I think there's also an interest here that we have to think about, which is actually how do you, if you're saying, okay, we need to get out of fossil fuels and into decarbonised energy production of various sorts, what are we going to do with the workers in those industries? And that's where you have to also have a sense that the profits that are being made by these companies are not turning into higher wages for workers. It's why you had wildcat strikes. Uh, in the North Sea over last summer because people weren't being paid very much. But you know, lo and behold, they face the same inflation as everyone else. So there's an alliance that you have to build around that. But the really critical bit is that we can't continue thinking about a world where markets will just make prices go up and down and this will be an efficient and effective signal for society to respond to, that this is a good way to determine investment decisions. In a world where you have chronic ecological crises, you can't rely on the price mechanism to make that signal. So you have to do something else. It's going to have to look a bit like for some industries, for some goods and services, a control on the price and setting the price and setting it at a level that makes sense, given all your other objectives, like you want to decarbonise the economy. And progressive taxation. And progressive and, taxation. And industrial policy. Yeah, 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 exactly. And then you start to stack everything else up. It looks almost exactly the opposite of what the government is currently doing. Okay. Well, thanks very much. And applause for James. Oh, thank you. Thanks. Are we really cheeky? I asked two questions. <laughs> well, it's the same as. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, uh, well, one's quick, which is: Do you believe Mark Carney in his <coughs> book and his interviews about wanting to make the financial world work mm -hmm. for the world? And the other one is just the media and yeah. what a problem it is that the media presents this very inaccurate, false view of economics and yeah. how it works. And you get the odd person like Mick Lynch or James Snyder who can really blow blow through that. But mo for most people being interviewed, it's actually quite difficult because, mm -hmm. you know, it's based on such accepted norms like it's never questioned that 
you know, profits are to be protected, how, whatever the impact? It's two really good questions. I'm, I, yeah, I think Mark Carney believes it himself. He does think that finance can be made to do a lot more climate-friendly activities. I mean, in fairness to him, at the Bank of England, the bank did take a lead in trying to think through what it would need to do to make the financial system in Britain a bit more responsive to the idea of decarbonisation, to the threats that climate change poses. I mean, he recognised very early on, the bank recognised early on, that if, for instance, you have far more extreme weather events, this is a disaster for insurance companies, right? And suddenly your insurance industry is like at risk of collapse, so you have to do something. So he's kind of part of that, and he, and he no doubt actually believes himself that we can make all this work and it's all going to be good for humanity. Um, it is part of what I think is a bigger shift in how capitalism in general is operating that if you look, and again, Britain's a bit of sort of laggard in this, but if you look at what Joe Biden has put through in the last year with the Inflation Reduction Act, as they called it, with this colossal, it's not big enough, but it's huge investment in uh, decarbonisation, energy systems, this sort of thing. Now, there are actually all sorts of other problems with the heavy focus on everybody's got to use electric vehicles now, that sort of thing. But it is happening. So there's a recognition out there, not just from governments, but also, I think, from big capitalists that as climate change rolls on, as the need to decarbonise becomes more apparent, there is the option of trying to make money out of this, that you can invest in wind farms, in solar panels, in building battery factories, in whatever other parts of it, there's money to be made. So I think when Mark Carney talks like this, he's, sort of, he's kind of part of that movement. And the problem the rest of us should have is the movement won't be rapid enough, and if we go and look at, again, the Inflation Reduction Act or similar proposals now knocking around the EU, which is heavy investment in decarbonisation, we're going to have all these energy systems that are now decarbonised. Well, that's great, but if you're going to go out and sort of get rid of fossil fuels and make everything electric, uh, like all your cars and, and everything else uh, moves on the road, that's a huge requirement for things like copper for wiring and for lithium for your batteries. Um, where is that lithium going to come from? And who's going to produce it? And how are you going to refine it? And, and suddenly there's this huge resource demand. So I think at the minute we've got a lot of Mark Carney and others, and you know, you can see this movement towards making capitalism greener on its own terms. It is missing out the wider environmental and ecological crisis. Biodiversity loss is, is an obvious part of it. Resource use is the other bit. So I think our demands have to be you know, not just that we want to decarbonise. I think there's also a really big picture problem about we're going to have to change how we live in different ways. Now, that doesn't mean everybody's got to put on a sackcloth and it's got to be miserable, but relatively simple things like reducing the amount of time we spend in work, but insisting people getting the same amount of pay is a really effective way to reduce the environmental damage. For instance, you don't have people commuting quite so much. You can start to make lifestyle changes that are positive, that probably aren't going to be pushed through by capitalism by itself, but we can raise them as a demand that brings all of that together. Um, the other question was on the media. Like the, it's worth, worth having a look, actually. The, the BBC, after even a lot of sort of eminent mainstream economists had a go at them uh, last year, no, two years ago. The BBC was forced to conduct what it called a, a thematic review of its economics coverage. And it's quite damning, right? If you read it, it basically says, and I think it, it's right on this as a sort of first port of call on the problem, is that it's not so much the economics correspondents the BBC who tend to sort of know what they're talking about, at least to some extent, right? They're actually not bad. It's the political correspondents who will use all sorts of poorly understood, 
quote common sense understandings of how the economy operates to say things like, oh, well, the nation's credit card is maxed out. I mean, where is this credit card? Right, the cupboard is bare. They'll just repeat and did it for a decade of austerity, just repeated kind of lines straight from government. And that's political reporting, which of course is the first thing you see on the BBC in terms of the headline news of it. The economics coverage is somewhere else. So the real like problem, I think we actually have it worse in this country than other parts of the world, of a real level of stupidity, really, and misunderstanding about what even the mainstream of economics would be saying about how the economy operates. So that's quite a problem. It's good that the BBC have identified this and see if they actually do anything to you know, change how they operate and the kind of training they give to their journalists about how economics is. The other part of it, I suppose, and, and addressing what the media does and how it changes people's perception, the real difficulty you've got here is that you can say what you want on the television, but it's whether or not it matches up to people's experience and the reality they have to live in. You can say what you want about wages are too high. If everyone's sitting there going, this is obviously rubbish, like my wages are clearly not high enough and prices are too high, you can't make a story like a wage price spiral stick because you know, everyone can see it's nonsense. So I'm reasonably confident that in some ways that things are sufficiently bad that you can repeat a load of stuff about wage price spirals and it's greedy workers that are causing all this and everybody can see it's absolutely not the case. You just go to the shops and realise that the problem isn't that your wages are too high, it's that prices are too high. And I think that's part of the driver for, for the strikes that we see, that people just, you know, they can't possibly put up with 2% pay rise and inflation's at 10% or more. It's nonsense. And, you know, it provokes a reaction. It is provoking a reaction. That was James Meadway and Raven Hart on Radicals and Conversation in-house. You can find out more about the book on bookhousebristol.com, along with details about their other forthcoming events, many of which will appear in this podcast series in due course. If you enjoyed the show, then please don't forget to share, rate and review us wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'll be back in just a few weeks' time with our next episode of our regular panel show. So until then, thank you for listening and goodbye. Goodbye.